Genesis chapter 23, verses 1 through 20. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abram went in to her to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephraim the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth four hundred shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field which the cave, with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of the Lord. In uh, the late 19th century, the great Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy wrote a short story and the name of the short story, or the title of it, is How Much Land Does a Man Need? How Much Land Does a Man Need? And it's about this young Russian man who doesn't think that he has enough land, and so he's busily acquiring more and more of it for himself. And there's nothing he won't do to get more land. He'll do whatever it takes. And he can never get enough, you find out early on in the story. So one day this man hears about a group in Russia that, does something sort of strange. They will sell land extremely cheap for a thousand ruples, which wasn't very much money at all. And they'll sell it to whoever comes and requests it. But there's one catch, and the catch is this. What this group would say, they're called the Bushkins in the story. They would say that as much land that you can walk around in one day and make it back to your starting point before the sun sets, that land is yours for a thousand ruples. But if you don't make it back to your starting point before the sun sets, then you both forfeit the money and you forfeit the land. Now, to this young man, this sounded like a dream come true. Like, this is an opportunity for a good young capitalist that doesn't come along every day. So he decides to go for it. He arrives early in the morning and 
begins to walk. And he gets out about three-fourths of a mile, and he places a stake in the ground to make his mark. He continues to walk. He goes about two more miles, and he places another stake in the ground. He keeps walking. He goes about three more miles or four more miles and places a third mark in the ground, and then he turns left. He walks and he walks and he walks so much that he's beginning to get tired. He goes into valleys and up hills all the time thinking, I can't believe all this land is going to be mine. Right when he begins to turn left again and head back, he sees a big, huge, beautiful meadow and thinks to himself, I must have this property as well. And so he quickly navigates the circumference of the meadow and finally turns to make his way back to the starting point. And as he turns to make his way back to the starting point, he sees that the sun is rapidly setting. It's like, you know, 5 p.m. And he's just turning to go back. So he walks fast and fast and fast, and he's getting tired. In fact, he's getting physically exhausted, but he knows he can't turn back at this point. Um, He starts thinking to himself, I've been too greedy. I've blundered. I've ruined myself. And he starts feeling physically worse and worse. And he rushes up the hill towards where his starting point was at the very end of the story. And he can see the starting point in the distance, drawing nearer. And right before he gets to the end, he collapses as the sun sets. The man's servant comes to him and finds that the man has died. And so the servant takes a spade and digs a six-foot hole in the ground and buries the man there. The answer to the question that titles the story, how much land does a man need, is about six feet. About the amount of land needed to bury you. Now that is a powerful story, at least in my opinion. it's It's a powerful story because it really gets right to our heart commitments, I think. Each person's heart commitments. How much land do we really need? Um, Some of us have, you know, we find ourselves never feeling like we're going to have enough. We have 1,500 square feet. We want 2,500 square feet. We have five acres, but we want 10 acres. And so we are frustrated with what we have, and we work, and we labor, and we never stop to enjoy it, and we work until we die. And then we find that we can't take any of it with us. We brought nothing into this world, and we can't take anything out of this world, right? And so I think the question I want to explore briefly together this morning that I really think this text is getting at is, is there another way? Is there another way? And I think that this story points us to the answer. It points us, I believe, to the deep truth that Abraham has come to understand by this late point in his life. There is another way. There is more to life than what we acquire. There's more than the grave, And for those who trust in Jesus Christ, there is far, far more. So let's think together about it just for a couple of minutes together this morning. This is our final week in our fall series in the life of Abraham. And here we see this man as an old man burying his wife. And so it's a sad story in some ways. And yet in the midst of Abraham's mourning and sadness, I think that we see him hoping and trusting in God. And it's amazing, I think, how much Abraham has matured and grown in his faith. You know, he's one of the great men of faith in all of human history, without question. And so even though this story might seem very strange to you, it's in the Bible for a reason. So what is the reason? What's the point? Let me try and summarize like this. Here's the main idea. Abraham believes in the promise of God 
and looks forward to its final fulfillment, even in the death of his wife. Abraham still believes God's promise and looks forward to its fulfillment, even in this sad moment at the end of his story when Sarah dies. So let's break this down into three parts, okay? First, I want to show you that Abraham mourns Sarah's death, and then second, he negotiates for Sarah's tomb, and then third, he believes God in Sarah's burial, okay? So first, Abraham mourns Sarah's death. Look at the story with me. You'll find there in verses 1 and 2 that that's what Abraham is doing. We read about the death of Sarah here. Now, at this point, we haven't heard from Sarah since Genesis 21, which, by the way, has been 35 years, 35 years since the last time we encountered Sarah. She dies at age 127, we read here, in Hebron, which has been Abraham and Sarah's base of operations for their sheep herding industry for a long time. And and Sarah is the only woman in the entire Old Testament, by the way, who has her name and age listed at the moment of her death. And what that means is that she is a very significant person in the story of the Bible. Twice later in the Bible, once in Jeremiah and once in 1 Peter chapter 3, Christians, especially Christian women, are called to emulate Sarah and to model Sarah. She is a woman of faith and trust in God, which is really remarkable. If you've walked through Abraham's life with us, you've seen Sarah in her lowest moments. And yet, we know that even though we've seen Sarah fall and sin, we can take confidence in the fact that she is presented by later writers of Scripture as a model of Christian faith. And so Abraham mourns for her in verse 2. This verse is really shorthand for all that would have happened in the ancient Near Eastern world when someone like Sarah passes away. Abraham would have laid his wife out on a funeral byre, and he would have done all that... uh, involved the ritual mourning of that culture. He would have torn his garments and he would have cut off his beard and he would have sprinkled dust in the air and ashes in the air and he would have wept for his wife. We read here that Abraham is deeply sorrowful over the death of his bride. Think about it. He's likely been married to Sarah for almost a hundred years. A century at this point. And here he is saddened and mournful over her passing away. And and look, can we just pause for a second? If you've been with the story of Abraham in the last few months as we've walked through this, then I hope that's encouraging to you. Here's why it should be encouraging to you. Abraham and Sarah had some issues. I mean, that's an understatement. (laughs) They had some marriage problems. And, And this is a model, I think, in many ways, of faithful perseverance through what is often troubling and painful in particularly marriage relationships. Sarah and Abraham's life, in many ways, is a story of pushing through the pain and tragedy of life and trusting and leaning into God's faithfulness in the midst of it. I mean, think about it. They have been through unfaithfulness. They've been through mutual deceit of one another. They've been through decades. I mean, we think about conflict in terms of, I've had a rough week with my spouse. Sarah's like, I had a rough, the the 40s were hard. You know, I had a rough decade with that time that Abraham sold me, you know, gave me to the Pharaoh. That was a rough decade. Uh, They've been through it. They persevered. They had a hard time. They went through the mutual sorrow of almost a whole life of barrenness, right? They went through the confusion of not knowing where God was calling them to go or what he was calling them to do. They went through the loss of children when Ishmael had to leave and when they almost lost Isaac. They've been through 
everything together. And yet they stuck it out. This is a testimony to the fact that God never leaves them in the midst of their trouble. They endured, they committed, they persevered. We see that here at Sarah's death. Andrew Peterson is a singer-songwriter who's a Christian, and um, I really like a lot of his music, and I think he's one of the best and most insightful songwriters out there today. And he has one song about his own marriage, and the song is called Dancing in the Minefields. That's his metaphor for marriage, which I think is apt. Dancing in the Minefields, it's a great song. Spotify it or whatever on the way home. It's really helpful. Um, And at one point in that song, he sings this, and he's referring to his marriage, and he says, it's harder than I dreamed, but I believe that's what the promise is for. The only way to find your life is to lay your own life down. But I believe that that's an easy price for the life that we have found. We're dancing in the minefields. So if you find yourself this morning, can we just stop for a second? If you find yourself this morning feeling like you might have stepped on a few mines (laughs) in the last couple of weeks in your marriage, in any significant relationship, in some ways this story can be a testimony to you and an encouragement to you to push forward. God has not forgotten you. God has not left you. God does not abandon you in the pain and turmoil and struggles that you will inevitably encounter. We see that here at the end of Sarah's story. So Abraham mourns for his wife, but he has to do more. And so in verse 3, and really taking up most of the rest of the chapter, we see Abraham negotiating for Sarah's tomb. He turns his attention to finding a place to bury his wife. And to do that, he is very intent on buying land. We read in verse 4 that Abraham is a sojourner and a foreigner among the Hittites. That is, he owns no land. He's not a landowner. Even though God has promised him that all of the land on which he currently resides will be his and his families. And so he goes to the Hittites in sort of their uh, chamber of commerce, so to speak, or the government building, which was the gate of the city in the ancient world. And he begins to negotiate with them to buy a burial plot for Sarah. And that negotiation takes place in three speeches, which makes up most of the chapter. And in the first speech there in verses 4 through 6, we see that Abraham says he's a sojourner and he asks the Hittites to give him a property for a burying place. And if you look there in verse 6, the Hittites say, we'll let you bury her in any one of our tombs. Go for it, free of charge. But Abraham says no. Now, it's hard to know if you are not familiar with that culture, what's going on here. So let me tell you what's going on. Abraham knows that in the ancient world, oftentimes someone could, quote, rent a tomb, or borrow a tomb for a while, bury their dead there, and yet when the body decomposed and there were just bones and the Hittite that had loaned the tomb to Abraham needed that tomb for something else, he would, you know, just kind of take the bones and throw them out, throw them out and reuse the land, reuse the tomb. Abraham knows that. And furthermore, the Hittites almost certainly know that, and that's what they're offering. And so Abraham says, no, I don't want to rent a tomb. I want to buy a tomb. I want land of my own so that I can ensure that Sarah will stay there and that it can be my my family grave, so to speak. And so he talks about that in the second speech. He tells he tells them that this isn't satisfactory. He wants to buy some land and he he offers to buy the cave of Machpelah, which is in the land of this man named Ephron the Hittite. And so him and Ephron begin to negotiate because Abraham makes it clear that he wants something permanent. And so that leads to the third speech. 
And in the third speech, Abraham asks for a price to be quoted. You see that there in verse 13. And Ephron tells him, he says, it'll cost 400 shekels. And the way he presents that, it sort of makes it seem like, you know, what? it's a couple bucks, no big deal. 400 shekels is a tremendously huge amount of money. That is seven and a half pounds of pure silver. So seven and a half pound barbell. I mean, I use like a 200 pound barbell typically when I work out, but seven and a half pound barbell. You all laugh because you know that's just ridiculous. Uh, you know, imagine a seven and a half pound barbell just of pure silver. It's a lot of money. And for example, later in the Bible, Jeremiah buys the field in Anathoth for 17 shekels, which was much more what the market value was. So Ephron is quoting Abraham an absurdly high price with the intent of beginning the negotiations. But what does Abraham do? Abraham immediately says, deal probably surprising Ephron and all of the Hittites. He gets them to witness the deal being made, buys this cave and the land surrounding the cave for 400 shekels because he wanted to secure some land for himself. Okay, so that's what happens in the chapter. So why in the world should you care? (laughs) Why is this important? How did this make it into the Bible? Here's why it's important. Here's why a whole chapter in Genesis is dedicated to this story. You only got 50 chapters, and this is one of them, okay? Why? Because what we see here is that Abraham is remembering and believing God's promises to him. This is a purchase of faith. This is a burial of faith. As I said a second ago, God has promised all of the land of Canaan to Abraham and his descendants. Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. Genesis 13, 14 and 15. Genesis 15, verse 7. Genesis 21. Again and again and again, we've seen him make these promises of the land. And now Abraham has a little piece of it, you see. He is putting his stake in the ground. This burial plot, this cave of Machpelah is a down payment, you see, in Abraham's mind of God's future blessing to him and to his family. So this is really significant. Abraham is here saying, as it were, this is all the land I need. I can trust in God. This is enough land to ensure me of my inheritance that has been promised to me by God. He is putting a stake down in the promises of God here. He doesn't need to see everything that God has promised come to him here because he has learned over a lifetime that God is good for it all. This is just a down payment. He's exercising faith in this purchase of land. And indeed, Abraham himself is buried here next to Sarah a few decades after this moment. Abraham's children and their wives, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah, are all buried in the cave at Machpelah. This is a neat story, I think. But in light of the rest of the story of Scripture, we know that what Abraham is really doing is putting a stake in a better land. He's hoping in God's promise to him of a better country. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us about Abraham. In Hebrews 11, verse 10, we read this. Listen, for he, that's Abraham, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Abraham is a sojourner and a pilgrim in the world in which he lived. And here we see him hoping for an eternal city, hoping for the new heavens and the new earth, hoping 
for the final fulfillment of the promises that God has made to him. That's what this burial of his bride in the land of Canaan represents. He is longing for the new world. At the very end of uh, The Last Battle, which is the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, uh, I think still, is one of the best depictions of heaven, of the new heavens and the new earth that I've ever read. He's writing about the Narnians and the children as they enter into new Narnia. And as they're making their way around the new world, seeing the fulfillment of the promises that Aslan has made to them. At one point, one of the children says this very profound thing. He says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all of my life, though I never knew it till now. Come further up. Come further in. That's exactly what Abraham is doing. He is waiting on and trusting that God will one day bring him to a city whose builder and architect is God. It's a sign of his faith here in buying the land. So we see that he negotiates for Sarah's tomb. He mourns her death. And then finally he believes God, as we've already seen a little bit. He believes God in Sarah's burial. He's trusting God in the purchase of this cave, in the burial of his wife. He knows that he will receive all that has been promised to him. Listen, he knows that he will receive from God all that has been promised to him. How does he know that? How can Abraham have confidence that that is true? How can he know that God is going to give him all of his promises as he watches Sarah die and looks around and says, all I own is six feet of dirt? you know, proverbially speaking. Abraham didn't see all of the promises of God come true for him in his life. So how can he trust that he will see them in the afterlife? How can Sarah's grave, how can Abraham's grave be a stake in a better promised land? How can it be a stake, a down payment in the city that is to come? How can Abraham have faith when all he owns is a grave? Here's how. Because in Sarah's grave, Abraham sees by faith Jesus' grave. Really, this is a story not so much about the burial of Sarah as it is a story about our trust in the burial of Jesus. What do I mean by that? Listen, uh, last week, remember, we saw that Jesus says in John eight fifty six that Abraham saw my day and was glad. I remember that. And I think that's what's happening here too. Abraham believes God in Sarah's burial because Abraham comprehends or sees by faith that Jesus will be buried. Have you ever wondered why Jesus' burial is always mentioned in those sort of summaries of the gospel that you find in the New Testament? I mean, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, the first few verses, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died according to our sin, uh, for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. So why is Jesus' burial so important that it's always mentioned with his death and with his resurrection? Well, it's important for one because it shows us that Jesus is identifying with us in our graves. Jesus really did die, you see. Jesus really did experience fully what it means to be human. And part of what it means to be human in a broken world is that we will all die. That's why the Apostle Paul tells us elsewhere that we are united with Jesus in his 
death as well as in his resurrection. So it's important because it means Jesus identifies with humanity. But it's also important because it reminds us that Jesus did not stay in the grave. He was really dead. His life had ceased. There was no brain activity. There was no heart pulse. He was dead. And God rose him to new life forever. The burial of Jesus makes the resurrection of Jesus all the more meaningful and significant. The reason Jesus' burial is emphasized is because the New Testament writers want people to see the glory of the resurrection of Jesus, that he was given a new body and a new soul that has been perfected forever. The New Testament says that Jesus is the first fruits of the new humanity. He did not stay in the grave. So the burial of Jesus reminds us of the resurrection of Jesus. It shows us that what happened to Jesus will happen to us if we connect with him through faith. When we trust in Jesus, when we believe what Jesus has done for us in his death and burial and resurrection, the Bible says we are united to him. We connect with his experience so that his death in some way is our death. His burial is our burial, and his resurrection is our resurrection. Listen, this story, Genesis 23, really, really has everything to do, not just with Sarah's grave and not just with Jesus' grave, but with our graves. Listen, uh, not exactly breaking news, but we are all going to die. Unless Jesus returns, every one of us will die. Thanks a lot, Pastor, right? That's why I came to church this morning to hear that we're all going to die. But you are. All of you are going to occupy a grave. That is how much land we all need, as Tolstoy put it so beautifully in his story. But this story points us to the truth that our graves, our own deaths, and our own burials are stakes on the promises of God. They are stakes in the future country, the new heavens and the new earth where all things will be made new, where there will be no more death. And so as Abraham buries his beloved wife, he is trusting that the grave is not the end. Sarah's grave was not the end of Sarah. Your grave is not the end of you. Why? Because Jesus' grave was not the end of Jesus. He defeated the grave. He defeated death. He has conquered the last enemy. And when you connect with Jesus through faith, you too in him conquer the last enemy, death. You too will be raised from the dead. And so, just like Abraham did, we can rejoice. We can be glad. That is what Abraham saw. All we need is enough land to be buried in. We can believe that and rejoice in that because we know that because of our own resurrections, one day all things will be ours. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, all things are ours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. That is what the Holy Spirit is calling us to see and believe through this story. We know that after Christ comes again, and ushers in his new world, where all that is broken will be repaired, where all hurts will be healed, where all oppressions will be rectified, where all tears will be wiped away. After that, we will inherit the earth. Abraham could rejoice in that because he saw what Jesus would do for him 
Can you rejoice in that this morning because you know what Jesus has done for you? How much land does a man need? Enough for a grave. And yet even a grave is reason for hope because Jesus rose from the grave. We too will rise by faith in him and then we will receive our rewards. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your goodness to us in the gospel. Father, we believe and trust that you have demonstrated your commitment to us that is unbreaking and unflinching because you've sent Jesus to live and to die and to be buried and then to be raised again by the power of the Spirit. And Father, even as we face our own mortality, as we face the brokenness of our own bodies and the brokenness of the world in which we live, God, we ask that you would grant to us the faith that Abraham had, that even in the death of his wife, he could be glad, he could rejoice, he could put down a stake of faith in the better country that is to come. We long for that day, God, especially when we feel deeply our own wounds in this life. So will you help us to see what is to come today by faith and to walk in that faith as we seek to trust you. We pray it in Jesus' name.